My mother once told me that when, when I was younger and people would ask her what she would like me to do when I grew up, she would say this. I don't mind what he does. He can be a dustman as long as he loves the Lord. So, not wanting to disappoint my mother in her dreams for me, I became a dustman. Actually, to give me my official title, I became a cleansing operative. So in my university holidays, I'd get up at some earthly hour in the morning, get on the back of my friend's 250cc Honda, and travel to pool to pick up other people's rubbish. Now this was the days you understand before health and safety and bins on wheels. You don't know how easy they have it these days, I tell you. This was the days before people had to put their bins out if they wanted to have them collected. This was the days of heavy lead dustbins that weighed a tonne without any rubbish in them at all. And as a cleansing operative, I would have to go and find the dustbin, and you'd be surprised where people hide their dustbins, pick it up, carry it to the lorry, tip it, carry it back to the place I found it, and I would have to make sure that the gate was shut or open, depending on whether it was shut or open when I first went in, and I would have to escape before being attacked by the dog. I would have to make sure that I took everything people designated as their rubbish. I threw away a motorbike cover once because someone put it on the top of their dustbin and wondered why I threw it away. I said, well, where did you put it? It was on the bin. Now you go figure. You can come and follow the lorry when he tips it. You can come and get it back if you want. In those days, you could tell the time by the dustman. Some kinds of people would be ready with a drink for the boys. Some would slam and lock their doors on our arrival. And you could tell I discovered how people lived from the contents of their dustbin. Some people were careful and kept their bins tidy, even using bags in which to put their rubbish. Others just chucked everything as it was, food waste, general rubbish, and a whole manner of weird stuff. But what I remember most was the smell. There is a very distinctive smell of rubbish. And sometimes it was so potent, particularly in summer when the maggots were in plentiful supply, it literally made me gag. But whatever the bin was like, and however potent the smell, I always, always had to take the rubbish. I even complained one time to the guys, and they said, no, Ian, you have to take it. And every day, every week, every year, cleansing operatives were at work in the rubbish. Some days I would have to travel home on the bus just because the way the timing of the rounds worked out. I always, always got a seat on the bus because of the smell. But I had been collecting their rubbish, but they couldn't stand the smell. Here's a thought. Where would we be if nobody was at work in the rubbish? Here's another thought. Where would we be if nobody was at the work in the mess of our lives? Here's a deep, profound, and beautiful truth. God is at work 
in the mess. He was at work in the mess of the Garden of Eden. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan used flattery. You will be like God. Adam and Eve fell for it and we've been falling for it ever since. Welcome to the mess. But... But even in the mess of the Garden of Eden is a promise. I am reading from Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is a promise of a redeemer who will ultimately defeat Satan. God is already at work in the mess. God is a redeemer God. He turns around what was meant for evil and makes it into something good. And it seems to me that he does that in our lives too. It is the extraordinary out of the ordinary mess that we are so often in the business of making. We see it all the way through the story of God's people. You remember that guy Joseph? Joseph whose brothers sell him to men going to Egypt because they want to get rid of him because they despised him. They lie to their father Jacob and tell, jo uh, tell Jacob that Joseph is dead. Years later, when there's a great famine in Egypt and Joseph is the governor of Egypt, Joseph rescues and saves his family. And at the end of the story, when the family is terrified of him, but they have been saved and restored, Joseph says these stunning words. And I'm reading from Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Don't be afraid, Joseph says to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That is an extraordinarily powerful statement. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? There's a whole sermon in that. How often do we play God? Anyway, that's a whole other story. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is at work in the mess. God chose Israel to be a light to the Gentiles. They had a king, but they were a different kind of kingdom. God was their king in the kingdom of the heavens. But Israel demanded a king like everybody else had. They wanted an earthly king. God warned them what it would be like if they had an earthly king, but they wanted a king anyway. And stunningly, God relents and gives in and tells Samuel to give them a king. I think it's one of the saddest chapters in the Bible. It's 1 Samuel chapter 8. In the end of it, God, Samuel says, go back to your towns, we'll choose a king. And it's a mess. Their first king, Saul, didn't want to be king. In fact, they found him hiding in the baggage because he didn't want to be king. They chose him to be king because he was tall and good-looking. Bad reasons for choosing a king. Although, interestingly, if you do studies of all the great world leaders, do you know they're all over six foot tall? 
It's fascinating. And we know that Saul dies by taking his own life, by falling on his sword, because we've already read that. He did that rather than be captured by the Philistines. What a great king he was. But God is at work in the mess. For the next king is David and then Solomon. This was the golden era. Israel was prosperous and at peace. Perhaps you could say kingship redeemed. But God's work is bigger and far better than that. And because out of the house and line of David, in the town of David, a saviour will be born. Back to a promise we heard already. Out of the disaster of demanding a king comes the royal line and the king comes into the mess. God is at work in the mess. Jesus, captured, tortured, beaten, killed by human hands. You ask the question, is God for injustice and cruelty and mob rule? Is that what we're supposed to be like? No, of course not. But he is at work in the mess of flawed, fallen humanness. And his death on a cross becomes the means of unsurpassed grace and his magnificent love in reaching to us. I'm going to read from Judges chapter 14, and I'm starting at verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go and get her as my wife. Interesting way to speak to your parents. (laughs) His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all, all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She's the right one. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward them. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, So he tore the lion apart with his bare hands, as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime after, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it was a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they ate it too. But he did not tell them he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and there Samson held a feast as was customary for young men. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. If you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not get the answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's house to death. It's kind of getting serious now, isn't it? Did you invite us here to steal our property? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, you hate me, you don't really love me, you have given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't explained it to my father or mother, he replied, so why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. 
So on the seventh day, he finally told her because he had she had continued to press him. So in turn, she in turn explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved the, my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended to him at the feast. Great stuff, isn't it? <laughs> Samson, it seems, do what we often do. He was led by what he could see. He saw a woman, and he liked her, and he decides he will marry her. Long before the film of the same name was made, Samson would be sleeping with the enemy. He was, not, he was supposed to be leading Israel against the Philistines, not getting into bed with them, metaphorically and literally. But he insists he will marry this Philistine woman. He seems to have no concerns at all about his Nazarite vow or the wishes of his parents. He appears to have no loyalty whatsoever to Israel, and apparently he got no clarity whatsoever in his ethics. But this is complex. Remember last week we saw that the Lord began to stir in Samson. So here's the dilemma. You might have noticed this. To marry a Philistine is clearly against the law. You can read about that in Exodus and Deuteronomy. You can't do that. Samson knew that. His parents knew that. And God knew that on the basis that he'd given them the law. He was also breaking cultural expectations. I said to the parents, you're supposed to marry one of your own. That's what you do. But here's what the text said. If you didn't notice it already, verse 4. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time, they were ruling over Israel. Are you now slightly concerned about what is happening in this story? Because if you're not, you should be. It would appear that God is directly involved in Samson's plan to marry a Philistite woman, wouldn't it? That's what it seems to imply. But that can't be right, can it? Unless God is breaking his own law. You can't marry them, go and marry one. Well, doesn't that worry you? Does, is that not kind of starting to make you think, hang on a minute. God appears to have said one thing in one time and place, and he's now doing completely the opposite. What on earth is going on? Does God break his own principles? Because if, if that's true, we have a serious problem, I think, friends. How can we follow and serve a God we cannot trust to be true to himself, might be the question. More than that, why would we want to follow a God like that? Okay, so here I think is the deep, challenging, yet beautiful truth contained in this part of Samson's life. God is quite capable of using a circumstance of which he is not the architect and just because God uses a circumstance does not mean that he is the architect of that circumstance. That's a really important distinction. 
God is quite capable of using a circumstance of which he is not the architect. But just because he does use a circumstance does not mean he is the architect of that circumstance. Unless you've read a different Bible to me, there is no record in the text that God commanded Samson to go marry a Philistine woman. He never says that. Samson chose her all on his own. He liked what he saw. Go get her for me. I wish I'd, have, I wish I'd once had the courage like, in life to do something. Like, go, go get her for me, Mum. Really fascinating to see what my mum would have done. I, I, th- I think I'd have been in massive trouble. <laughs> but God was quite capable of using Samson's headstrong, misplaced choice to get done what he wanted to get done. Because God is looking for an opportunity to confront the Philistines, remember, because the Philistines ruled over Israel, and that's not supposed to be how it is. God was at work in the mess. God is able to step into the mess and transform moments of madness into treasure. Thankfully, God is at work in the mess of Samson's life, and thankfully, God is still at work in the mess of your life and mine. Here's an important question, though. Does that mean I can simply blunder on doing whatever I like so that I can give God the opportunity to bring great treasure out of the mess I have created? No, it does not. Remember, God cannot bless sin. You can't ask God to bless sin. You can't. He can't do it. But sometimes God, God does bless stuff we do badly. That's the same thing I just said, only in a different way. God is not necessarily the architect, but he can use a circumstance. We, I think we often get that so massively confused. Because we, we sometimes, God in his grace blesses us, and we think, oh, it must be all right then. And God's going, no, it's not all right. But I'm a loving, gracious God who abounds in love. And I'm going to use that. And, and you're getting blessed. Because I always want to bless. It's an important distinction. Paul expresses it this way in Romans. You'll be very familiar with these words. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound more? In other words, the more I sin, the more I give God an opportunity to demonstrate his grace. Sounds quite clever, doesn't it? And Paul's saying No. By no means, says Paul. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live for it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in his death like this, We are certainly also united with him in his resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. 
In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, in other words, in the light of everything I just said, do not let sin run over your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. The magnificent, wonderful, beautiful truth is this. God is at work in the mess. Now here's the challenge. This is actually all about grace. We mess up, God still works. But just because we can see God at work doesn't make what we can see or what we do right. It wasn't right that Samson married a Philistine woman. But God in his grace was at work in the mess. It wasn't right that Israel demanded a king and were given one. But in his grace, God was at work in the mess. How many times have you heard a story of a church that appears to be growing and where people are getting saved and all manner of good things are happening and then you hear that the leader has fallen from grace? They've had an affair or they've embezzled the money and then you find yourself thinking, wait, wait, how can that be? If that was going on, how come God was blessing? It seems to tell two contradictory stories. Well, the answer is this. God is at work in the mess of what is not right, bringing about great treasure. And God is doing it all the time. And we talked a little bit, I mean, there's probably a whole load of stuff in this, but we talked a little bit about we have to be careful what we do with what we see about God's blessing and what we then extrapolate from that and understand that God is doing. Does that sound really complicated? I think it's really simple. (laughs) Right, the bottom line is, friends, you can't use God's blessing as an excuse to go on sinning. If you know you're doing something wrong, God, stop. Whatever's going on. I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't want to talk out of turn, but Willow Creek, massive church. It's all gone belly up. I don't know the truth. I know what I've read. Some people accuse Bill Hybels of sexual misconduct. 40 years he's been in that church. That church done massive stuff. Well, God was at work in the mess. Very talented guy, done some great stuff. Might, might have made some mistakes. I don't know the truth of it. But if you look at it from the outside, you think, gosh, he must be living the right life, mustn't he? God's blessing him. Well, he was blessing him, yes. And he did get a lot right. Yeah, but he got some things wrong too because God is at work in the mess. Here's the thing, right? No one, no one is ever right about everything. No one is pure. No one is perfect. And I'm sorry to tell you, but that includes you. But the good news is, well, I'm not sure it is good news, but it's true. It's me as well. We are, in truth, a mixture of right and wrong, good and bad, Christ-centered, me-centered, gracious and selfish, and a lot of the time, I still want to be the hero of the story. Because God is at work in the mess doesn't mean he planned, he's pleased, sorry, with how I behave or what I say or what I do or how I choose to live. 
But in his grace, he is the God who abounds in love and grace. So God works through the proud, through the arrogant, through the selfish, and through those who want to be be the hero of their own story. God works through leaders who preach brilliantly on Sunday and who live disastrously from Monday to Saturday. And here's the thought. If God only worked through perfect people, he would get absolutely nothing done. The deep and profound truth is this, that God is the work in the mess of your life and of mine. We cannot simply insist that God straighten out the mess that we have created. But his magnificent grace is a gift he bestows on flawed, fallen human beings. So as I find myself again, as I do in the story of Samson, I find myself again in God's bigger and far better story. The story of the God of immeasurable grace who is at work in the mess. Amen.